You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio. What's happening now is the culmination of things that have been happening for a long time. You know, for a really long time, I've been looking at the impact that Facebook has been having on the world with some dismay. And actually, I've, I've, I've lost some sleep over, you know, laying in bed at night, looking up at the ceiling and and kind of thinking, like, what have I done here? We're living through some pretty surreal times. Most of the country is still shut down due to COVID-19. Over the last few days, we've seen protests and riots across the country following the police killing of George Floyd, an unarmed black man. All while one of the biggest tech companies on the planet, Facebook, is dealing with its own turmoil. It's not a coincidence. It boils down to this. Many believe President Trump's use of social networks makes situations like these worse. In this case, critics say some of his latest social media posts could incite violence and spread misinformation. Both Twitter and Facebook have taken different approaches. In some cases, Twitter has chosen to restrict or add warning labels to the president's more inflammatory posts. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg has chosen a hands-off approach. He says it's not the company's place to restrict free speech, and these posts don't violate Facebook's policies. But this comes down to a larger and incredibly important conversation about the limits of free speech and the role that tech companies play in civil discourse at a time when the stakes could not be higher. Over the last few days, employees at Facebook have staged virtual walkouts. They've voiced their opposition to the policy publicly. Some have even quit. Now, I've been covering Facebook for almost a decade. I've interviewed Mark Zuckerberg several times. This is a company that keeps things pretty close to the vest. Employees don't often speak out this vocally. So what we're seeing here, to use an overused word lately, is unprecedented. And yes, I know, we just wrapped up season one of the show, but this is simply too important to ignore. So my guest today on this bonus episode of First Contact is Barry Schnitt. 
He was Facebook's director of communications for four years from 2008 to 2012. These were pivotal years for Facebook, and he just published an article on Medium criticizing the company's position. The company was facing very different challenges back when he worked there, but I think his perspective is interesting and important, especially as other people are voicing similar thoughts. I'm Lori Siegel, and this is First Contact. First of all, how are you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm, uh, you know, look, I'm as well as can be. Um, we call this first contact. And I was trying to think because I, I've covered Facebook for a really long time and you worked at Facebook during four very, very important years. So I don't remember if we've been in contact, but I feel like we must have had a contact at some point. Yeah, I'm. I have to believe that at some point I sent you a statement about some privacy controversy or something at the very least, but you know, I'm sure you were dealing with so many people there and I was dealing with so many journalists, yeah. uh, you know, but I know, I knew your name and I, I know who you are for sure. Well, and, and so take me back to your role. I mean, you were at Facebook for four very important years, right? Back, it was 2008 to 2012. Um, That's right. What, what was your role there? Yeah. So, uh, my boss at Google, Elliot Schrag, moved over to Facebook and uh, he said, you know, we're doing some really interesting stuff here and you should come. So I did. And my role was doing communications and some public policy work around privacy, safety, security, and content issues. And so what that ended up meaning was pretty much every controversy and crisis that Facebook dealt with during that time, I was a spokesperson for it and uh, was working behind the scenes to try and figure out what our not just our communications response was, but uh, also what our kind of substantive response was to it. Yeah, it was almost like, because I remember covering those days, like Facebook was growing at lightning speed during that time. Um, and there were so many things that were happening with privacy, with the switch to mobile. Facebook was, you know, right. going public, launching a mobile app. There was just acquiring all these companies. Um, you were kind of on the front lines. Yeah, for some of that, for sure. Yeah, and it yeah. was uh, it was a very exciting time, and lots was happening, and uh, it was also a very stressful time. But uh, you know, I'm I'm proud of a lot of the work that we did then. Yeah, and and part of why I wanted to have you on today, you wrote this piece on Medium. Yeah, you know, speaking uh, on Facebook's policies on free speech, and what a fascinating moment to be having this conversation, and what an important moment to have this conversation. Um, a lot of this is is happening in the news now, but this it almost feels like we've been coming to this moment for a very long time. You know, I think over the last couple of weeks, it was a decision Zuckerberg made to not, you know, put a warning label on uh, on a Trump post. Uh, Jack Dorsey from right. Twitter made the decision to put a warning label on it, and it's really put into focus. I think some of these issues that a lot of folks are pretty concerned about at the heart of social media. And what's very unique for our listeners is like having covered this company for a really long time, people don't really speak out. Uh, it's very rare to see um, people collectively speak out and really say things and kind of organize and come together, employees at the company. It's a very tight-lipped company. Right. Um, and we're really beginning to see almost like a sea change of behind the scenes, people beginning to talk about these things. So maybe we can start with what, you know, what was the premise of what of what you wrote and why did you decide to write it? Well, yeah, uh, it was actually, it was a lot of soul searching for me, you know, and, uh, yeah. and, and I think you, you described it pretty accurately in that 
what's happening now is the culmination of things that have been happening for a long time. Um, and it's, it's, it's not just about Trump, um, at least not for me. Um, but, you know, for a really long time, I've been looking at the impact that Facebook has been having on the world um, with, with some dismay. And, and actually, I've, I've, I've lost some sleep over, you know, laying in bed at night, looking up at the, at the ceiling and, and kind of thinking, like, what have I done here? Because, you know, I, I joined Facebook with the idea of, you know, changing the world for better. And I think, you know, what you're seeing in terms of employees and former employees speaking out is because they don't just care about Facebook, but they care about the world. And that's why they worked at Facebook. And when they're seeing the potential that Facebook is having to negatively impact the world, they they want to do something about it. Um, and they feel like Facebook can do something about it. And that, that was part of the premise of, of my writing is that, you know, Facebook in the time that I worked there and the time before and the time since has overcome, you know, tremendous challenges. Um, and every single time they rise to it and overcome, you know, whether it's facing Google, which was a behemoth or MySpace, which at the time was a behemoth, or, you know, you mentioned the change to mobile, you know, these are, these are things that they took from nothing and they made a tremendous success out of them. And I think they have the opportunity to, to do that here with, you know, actually being a force for, you know, information and for understanding and for truth but they're not doing that right now. Um, and so my, my goal was actually to try to rally them to that end because I know that they have the ability to come up with some really innovative solutions that could have an impact on the world and I think don't necessarily need to restrict free speech. And I, I, did, I think that's a false choice and that, those are the words I use in, in my writing and I, I, I believe that strongly. Yeah, I mean, it, can you give us your argument about, because you know I know Zuckerberg really more so than any tech founder I know, really digs his heels in when it comes to this argument on free speech. You know, when he says, when Trump was posting and saying, um, it was a post that said something like, when the looting happens, the shooting happens or something. And people right. were very concerned this was going to promote violence. But Zuckerberg's argument is he that Facebook will not be the arbiter of truth um, and that it's a slippery slope. This has always been the company's argument. Um, and it's not changing. Now, what you say in, in this piece is that a lot of things have changed in the time that you guys drew up those community standards and the time that this happened and that words have more meaning and are more powerful in a different way because a lot of things have changed. Can you explain that to us? Yeah. Um, so, you know, in 2008, you know, there are a lot of discussions about how to handle speech on, on Facebook. And, and the, the main conclusion was, you know, Facebook is going to have a hands-off approach to it. And I think that made sense in 2008. You know, one, there were the professional arbiters of truth, and I believe the press are, are those and have been for centuries, you know, were much stronger and had much more distribution. I think Facebook was growing, but, but still relatively small. And that's changed, you know, and, and Facebook was not a source for their people looked for news and information. You know, it was a place where you looked for photos from your friends or, you know, funny mm -hmm. memes, etc. And all of that has changed, you know, dramatically in that, you know, the press has, you know, newsrooms have been decimated. You know, the economics of news have changed dramatically. Uh, Facebook is a news and information source for literally billions of people. And I don't think a decision made with the variables in 2008 still holds in 2020, especially if you look at the consequences, you know, um, everything from Brexit to elections here in the U.S. to elections around the world to health information during this pandemic are all being threatened by disinformation that is found and hosted by Facebook. And I just don't see how you can look at 
the consequences of the decision you made more than a decade ago and see how dramatically bad they are and say, yeah, that was definitely the, still the right decision today. Right. I mean, I mean, it's a pretty powerful statement to have been an employee somewhere years ago, right? And to say that you've been losing sleep over decisions you made. I mean, that is a pretty powerful thing to say. If yeah. you go back, like, what, what are you losing sleep over specifically? Well, I mean, I can, I can bring it to, you know, just like a few weeks ago, you know, if, if you saw this pandemic video, which was a very slick, highly produced piece of gross misinformation about the current pandemic. And it was liked two and a half million times on Facebook, which means it was seen by many more people. And so that's literally millions of people who were misinformed about a current health crisis. Now, I, I believe that many of those people will make a decision based on what they saw in that video through Facebook that will be detrimental to the health of themselves or their family. You know, it, I don't think it could get more serious than people will die because of something they saw on Facebook. And uh, yeah, I, you're right. I lost sleep over that. Um, and I continue to. You know, you talk about, um, when we spoke before, like a key moment. And you mentioned like intent bias in this piece yeah. um, when you're talking through some of these issues. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, I mean, when I worked at Facebook and other tech companies, you know, you, you build these products and you, you think you know what they're going to do, but you never really know until they're out in the world and people are using them. And they always use them in ways that you didn't intend. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But, you know, your intention is good. You know, you had the intention to give them free speech or allow them to share or allow them to create, et cetera. And so your intent was good. And then you look at the outcomes and hopefully there are some good outcomes and there are bad. But because of your intent, you focus more on the good outcomes than the bad. And I think that's been happening at Facebook for years. And I think it's happening today And that you see them write the stories of success, you know, whether it's selling products or the organizing of groups. And I provide examples, you know, they, they, they tout this sisterhood of truckers, which I think is amazing. But at the same time, you know, Mark looks at all of that. And then he says, I don't see how Facebook could have impacted an election. Like he's too smart to not see that those things are the same. You can't have all of this good and organizing and people changing their minds in a good way and then not have the same thing happen in a bad way. So then having worked closely with him and having worked closely at, the, I would say, the company and being kind of the lead on communications, it could be crisis communications, communications, you say he's too smart for Then what do you think it is? Well, I, you know, I, I haven't talked to Mark in, you know, yeah. nearly a decade. And uh, so I can't know what's in his head. But, you know, the, the two things that my guess are one is the intent bias. I, I think he continues to look at all of the good that Facebook is doing in the world. And I agree with him that there is a lot of good. And he says that it's more than the bad. I would say that's not good enough. And I would say the bad is continuing is growing. And that that ratio is changing in a way that I think is bad for the world. And two, you know, when I worked at Facebook, there was something that Mark used to say a lot, and he had a chart and everything. And he would he would continually say, we're 1% done. And and that was in response to people being too conservative and people working to protect what we'd already achieved rather than working, taking risks to achieve the 99% that was left. And, and I feel like maybe for him and others at the company that, that that ratio has changed and that maybe they're feeling like there is more to protect than there is to achieve for Facebook and, mm. and that Facebook maybe is too important in the world to risk. But I would argue that if 
If we save Facebook, but the world burns, then we've made the wrong trade-off. Okay, we've got to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. More with my guest after the break. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing. Right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a nuanced argument too, right? Like it'd be too easy to simplify this and say, well, you should take this down, right? Like you look at right. Jack Dorsey, you know, he's in the line of fire with, with the president right now. Right. And, and now having put um, some of these labels on Trump's tweets, 
people are calling on Twitter to to put labels on all these other world leaders' tweets, you know, and we're wondering, well, why does this get a label and this doesn't get a label? And from me having covered tech um, throughout the years, it certainly seems like sometimes you get very confused about who's making the decision, why the decision gets made, and those standards don't seem to always apply in the same way and they change quite a bit. So with Facebook and, and the argument of it's a slippery slope, can you see it from the other side? Like, how do you weigh that argument right now in this current moment that this could lead to censorship? It could lead to a lot of other unintended consequences for the platform. Yeah, well, the the slippery slope, it's such a funny, you know, buzzword that, that I, you know, people invoke in in all kinds of situations. And I've heard it in meetings for, you know, decades. And I've come to realize that in a lot of ways, it's a cop out. In some ways, it means... Yes, we know the right thing to do in this situation, but we're not going to do it because we don't know the right thing to do in some of these future situations. Right. And if if that's the case, I mean, you know that again, that feels like a cop out. You know, I I know that the decision that I'm going to make here is wrong, but that's okay because I don't know what to do about these other situations. And I make the argument that Facebook is too smart, has too many resources, you know, too much innovation, too much technology to just use. A slippery slope as a way of of not doing the work to figure out, yes, we know the right thing to do, and let's work towards figuring out what the right thing to do on these other situations will be, um, and make those decisions as we go. And it will be hard, and there will be some inconsistencies, and they will make mistakes, but I think all of that is less bad than the current situation, which is rampant misinformation, rampant divisiveness, rampant incitement of violence, and I, and I think it's worth the risk. You know, it's interesting because when Zuckerberg testified in front of Congress for the first time, um, yeah. I remember I was there and day one was kind of the senators just asking like random questions about the internet. And it was right. kind of like, a, you know, I remember everybody was kind of like, okay, the takeaway here is also that, you know, the government needs to educate themselves when it comes to technology. But right. day two, I remember thinking this, Barry, I, I was like, day two is really interesting because you had Zuckerberg in front of a lot of House members who were all asking him about taking down content and who were all, this was, you know, what, I think this was a couple of years ago now, right? But who were yeah. all talking about, did they have a liberal bias? Um, and, and, you know, this is now we have another backdrop, which is regulation um, in the power of these big tech companies. And before all the, this whole pandemic happened, we had the conversation about, are these companies monopolies? Which, you know, I think that's a little bit, we've, we've pushed it aside just a teeny bit because there's so many other huge things happening in the world. But yeah. these companies are under a lot of pressure right now. And I make no judgment either way. I think, you know, Zuckerberg, uh, I think it's, it's, you know, having interviewed him many times and seeing some of this stuff, I, I don't get the the sense that it's all just political, right? Or that he's only just doing it all for the money. I actually think if you meet him, it's it's really different. Um, but do you think that part of this could be outside forces too? I mean, and, and not just with this, but with a lot of the decisions that Facebook is making and a lot of the pressure that they're under right now. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I 100% think there's outside forces at play here. And um, that's, what, that's kind of what I was meaning to talk about with the company working more to protect than to take risks to achieve is that I think those outside forces are real and scary. You know, I don't think any company wants to draw the ire of the president. I mean, I think he's shown that he will use whatever government levers he has at his disposal to make things difficult. I think Jeff Bezos is an example. 
you know, the work that he's doing against uh, Section 230 that, you know, that has been described as the 26 words that created the internet. He, he basically wrote an executive order to try to rescind that, you know, um, and that would be a dagger to the heart of all internet companies, I believe. And so I don't think it's the right answer, but it's an example of you're not wanting to get on the bad side of, of the president in this current administration. And I think that is playing very much into some of the decisions that the company is making and I don't think they're being honest with themselves or and certainly with the public that that's what's at play. You know, I think it's important to say like you and a lot of and we should mention that like a lot of other employees are speaking out. Some have resigned. Um, some are speaking out kind of behind the scenes. We just obtained a letter that folks wrote. Um, it was a lot of early employees that yeah. wrote, um, you know, all these employees, and I think this is a really important point, aren't saying Facebook is terrible. Facebook is bad. I'll read like a little, I thought this was so powerful. This is, um, this is from the letter that a lot of early employees, and I'm assuming many who you worked with, um, For sure. got together and they, they collectively wrote. Like this was, this is a letter, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this was a letter to Mark, right? That they wrote and it was published in the New York Times, but it was, yep. it was kind of more of a petition for talking about the standards. But they wrote, as early employees on teams across the country, we authored the original community standards contributed code to products that gave voice to people and public figures, and helped to create a company culture around connection and freedom of expression. We grew up at Facebook, but it is no longer ours. You know, I think that's such a, I, I gotta say, and, and maybe this is me being a little inside baseball as someone, um, you know, who's uh, looked at this company since, I would say 2009 or 2000, probably around 2010. But, but that's, you know, seeing a lot of these names, I, and I want our listeners to understand the names on at the bottom of these, and even you, right? You led comms, like no one at Facebook spoke like this or spoke out like this for a very long time. So I think it's a really big deal that, that people are really beginning to question some of these decisions. I agree, um, you know, and those are, uh, I know most of those people, um, they're, they're a lot of people smarter than me who, who signed that letter and, uh, and they're dear friends. And, um, and in fact, it just coincidentally, I, I sent my, you know, draft post to one of them said, Hey, I'd love your feedback. And they said, well, that's a coincidence. We happen to be working on something of our own. But yeah, I mean, I think it's collectively my experience that of, of lying awake at night thinking, you know, what have I done is not unique. And I think, you know, seeing the impact that Facebook has had on the world and, and being proud of it for a very long time, and then having that gradually become, you know, forms of, of shame and dismay is, is pretty powerful and seeing, you know, it's the, these are not, you know, people who are cranky critics, you know, the kind of people who always criticize Facebook about both doing too much and too little, being too far to the right and too far to the left. You know, these are people who joined the company willingly and poured their hearts and souls into it for years and are really shocked and dismayed about what it's, how it's, not of what it's become, but the impact it's having on the world. And, and I say, I, I have a distinction there because I don't think it's become evil. I, you know, I, I got that response to some people, you know, Facebook is evil. And I said, well, you know, that's not a solution. You know, if you, you know, I'm, I'm in all ears, you know, let's, let's provide some action. But I, I do think Facebook is not understanding the negative impact that it's having on the world. And I think it is not paying enough attention to potential solutions and certainly not putting enough effort towards developing those solutions. And, and I wish I knew the, the exact answer but I don't, but I do know that Facebook has the ability to come up with those answers. And I think that's part of what's so dismaying to 
to people who used to work at the company is that we know that Facebook can, can rise to these challenges and has, you know, limitless possibilities. And, and they're, for some reason, it feels like they're not trying to do that. And we just don't understand why. What, what do you think a solution is? I know they've created projects for journalists. They have an outside, almost editorial board for content now. Um, so they have done quite a bit over the last years for some of the criticism they've, they've received on content decisions with everything happening in journalism. I mean, what do you think is the solution? Well, I'll answer the opposite question first. I'll tell you what I don't think is the solution. You know, like I, I know Facebook somewhat. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I believe is that Facebook doesn't outsource things that are really important to the company. Never has, never will. And everything that you mentioned is effectively an outsourcing. The journalism project, hey, here's some money. You guys go do some interesting work. Fact check, hey, third parties, here's some money. Go do some interesting work. The board, hey, third parties, why don't you make some decisions for us because we can't make them. And the amounts of money that they put towards these efforts sound big but they are rounding errors in the in the Facebook universe. And I think if they were serious about a solution to misinformation, to the incitement of violence, and just to coming up with a new way to treat content, that they would do something internal. They would devote engineers to it. And, and that's the number, you know, having worked at Facebook, that's the number one signal for, for whether Facebook thinks something is important. How many top engineers are working on it? And everything that you described, I would argue the answer, the number is roughly zero. And that's, that's probably a little hyperbole because there's definitely engineers working on these related problems. But the things that they're touting as potential solutions to this are not actual solutions. They are, they are Band-Aids. And, you know, as I write, you know, I think we're actually hemorrhaging truth and civility on, on Facebook. And these are, these are a start, but they're just at the margins. And, uh, and I think they need to devote significant resources. I, I propose, you know, kind of a symbol in my writing that they just suspend their stock buyback, which they're, they've committed another 14 billion to doing that. That's the kind of resources that this is gonna take. And, and I don't think they literally need to find $14 billion. They have the money. Mostly what they need to find is the will. And again, I, I don't know exactly what they need to do, but I know they need to commit to doing it. And, and that's not even something they're willing to do thus far. You know, it's interesting. I remember interviewing Facebook's former head of security um, who was there for context, like during, uh, it was their team that discovered Russian influence. He was there for the election interference, Alex Stamos. And something he said to me, this was for a documentary I did on Facebook. Something he said to me was, you know, for a very long time, the growth team, they had more engineers at the growth team and it was bigger and the, the building was bigger than for the security team. So I think that's an interesting point you make about about engineers and, and, and to give a sense, like these are human problems, right? And so yeah. like, and you're talking about technology, but, but the real problem, this is not just Facebook, this is maybe beyond Facebook. And for a lot of the bigger tech companies and the time I covered it and they went into these, grew into these huge companies is that I don't think they anticipated when you talk about intent bias, I think there was an inability to look at the messy, complicated human problems that would happen in some capacity. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the intent is important because I think their intention is good and their, and their hypotheses were not crazy. Right. I mean, what Mark says is, you know, we think people should decide. Right. But, you know, I think we can agree there is truth and there are lies. You know, there is civil discourse and there is inciting violence. And I think we would all agree that 
truth should get more distribution and attention than lies. And we should agree that civil discourse should get more attention than inciting of violence. And what Mark would say was, yes, and people will figure that out and they will decide for themselves. But A, that's not what's happening. And B, some people aren't equipped to discern. And C, you know, there are very powerful forces that are deliberately trying to trick them into thinking that one is the other. And to, for Facebook to see all of that and throw up its hands and say, no, we're just free speech and we'll let the people decide, I think is, is wrong. And that's just tr what I'm trying to get them to realize. Right. Looking at this letter that a lot of the early employees, and, and do you, like some of the early employees, these are early architects of Facebook, but there are all sorts of people who signed this, um, yeah. who co-created this letter. And we'll put it in our show notes. I would suggest people read it just because whether you agree with it or not, it's really an interesting look at, I think, how people are viewing this moment in time and, and the implications. I agree 100%. And the implications. Um, you know, what some of these folks said um, in the letter was, since Facebook's inception, researchers have learned a lot more about group psychology and the dynamics of mass persuasion. You know, um, we understand the power words have to increase the likelihood of violence. You know, I, I remember being at CNN, um, it was outside when the bomb that was pulled out of the, the building, this was like a, say a year ago or something, right. someone had sent this, this bomb and it ended up in the mailroom. Thank God our, the incredible security at the time had found this. But, you know, um, it, had, it had stemmed from, I think, posts and tweets. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, like this is actually happening. You know, it had started there and, and the threats had started there. And, and, you know, and then I was watching a bomb pulled out of our building where I had been for 10 years. And it was such a, maybe as someone who uh, just has spent my adult career covering tech, it was just such a moment for me thinking like, wow, the implications like can be very real life. Um, so I thought that line in, in this piece was really interesting. Yeah, you know, that's, it's a good point. You know, this is not academic or theoretical. Um, you know, it's happening every day. People are being radicalized, you know, based on what they're seeing on Facebook. And by the way, it's not just Facebook. I wrote about Facebook because I worked there. I, I know more about the company. You know, the same could be said for pretty much every, every technology company that hosts user-generated content. You know, I think Twitter has come up with unique solutions for Trump's tweets, but there's a lot of work that they need to do too, um, you know, around abuse and around misinformation, et cetera, you know, they, and so I just don't know how to tell them what to do. Um, but right. yeah, this is, this is not happening in a faraway place. This is not some, uh, you know, dystopian future that we can imagine, you know, people are walking into a pizza parlor with a, with an assault rifle because they are, they believe that it is a child sex ring, you know, with, with the presidential candidate, you know, the pizza gate, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's absurd, but it's literally happening. People are planting bombs at CNN because they believe that it, based on what they've seen on Twitter and Facebook that, you know, you guys are the root of all evil. Um, and, uh, and that's something that we really need to take more seriously. Okay, we've got to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. More with my guest after the break. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. 
I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. To, you know, People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I guess the, the question for me is, I mean, this is such a tight-lipped company, right? Um, you know, even covering Facebook, it's a fascinating company and, and it has so much impact and it has completely transformed the world. But this is not a company where employees like freely generally tweet about how they feel or Facebook, I should say, post on Facebook about how they feel. That is, you know, that's not something that we've seen. We're in the lens of a global pandemic. We have protests and real, real anger and, you know, rightfully so in this country and around the world, um, given what's happening with the racial divisions and, and racism. And, and I think looking at the fact that people had Facebook and, and hearing what I'm hearing from kind of former employees and employees about people really kind of that turmoil behind the scenes, what do you think it is about now that's 
you know, causing people to maybe take the risk to say something when maybe they wouldn't have before? Well, I think it's two things. One, that it's it's not theoretical, you know, anymore. It's not academic. You know, we are we are seeing it's not isolated. You know, it's not just, you know, one incident of, you know, a crazy person that you could dismiss. You're seeing it, you know, simmering across the country and around the world, just people being incited to violence and radicalized. And two, you know, you you hit on every one of it. The stakes are so high. We are literally in the middle of a global pandemic. You know, nearly half a million people have died. The smart people who know about viruses say many more people will die, likely in the fall. And in the meantime, Facebook is providing health misinformation to them. You know, it's, I don't, I, as I write, you know, the only way that the stakes could be higher is if we were on the brink of a world war. And I don't think we are right now, but I don't see the logical conclusion of this being a lasting peace, right? You know, it, it will, it will be, there will be some violent outcome of all of this if it is not checked in some way. And in the meantime, in the short term, a lot of people will make health decisions that will be detrimental to their life and, uh, and Facebook will be complicit in it. And I think that's, that's just something that's got to change. You know, Facebook has always come under fire throughout, uh, by the way, as someone who's been on the other side of it, as a journalist who's asked very hard questions, interviewing Zuckerberg, right, in the midst right. of Cambridge Analytica and, and during some of the harder moments in the company, the company has always, you know, I feel like they, they've played defense for a very long time. And so there is, I think, a certain mentality around that and knowing that you're going to get criticized, but you kind of like, you just keep going if you have the mission. I think that's in the DNA of Facebook, if I could kind of define it in any for way. Sure. Do you think that this time is any different that they're that they'll listen to some of the former employees or or some of the you know some of the it, it, maybe because it's more people behind the scenes I know how much Zuckerberg does value the people he works with um, the short answer is I don't know um, you know I, I am having said all the things that I say and believe about Facebook um, I am almost a decade removed from the company I still sure. have a lot of friends there um, but you know I do think the opinion of the employees is is very highly valued. Um, and that is something that in the past has moved the company. There was a transcript that I read of a of an all company meeting earlier this week. And it it seems like, you know, for the most part, the at least the vocal people are very against the current stands of the company. I am sure that is weighing on the leadership. Um, whether it makes a difference, I don't know. Whether the external pressure Will make a difference. I don't know. The the one thing that's unique about the the external pressure right now is that it is it is so divided. In in most cases, when I was at at Facebook, there were cases where people were, you know, on both sides of an issue, telling us we were wrong. But mostly, it was a united front telling Facebook it was wrong. You know, you're doing the wrong thing on privacy. You're being too open. Um, you're you know you're not um, taking down this objectionable content. Um, but this is a case where people on the right are saying you're censoring too much and you're taking too active a role in content and people on the left saying you're taking an active role enough. And when it's divided like that, I don't know how you make the calculation for, you know, which is the path of least resistance. Um, and right. I, I, and I do think Facebook has made that calculation in the past. Um, and right now, because the forces of, you know, leave the content alone are in power, I, I worry that they will make the decision that that is the path of least resistance. Oh, 
in this this letter too that these employees sent, they said Facebook isn't neutral and it never has been. Making the world more open and connected, strengthening communities, giving everyone a voice. These are not neutral ideas. Fact-checking is not censorship. Labeling a cult of violence is not authoritarianism. I mean, covering a lot of these companies, it was for so long, hands off, we're neutral, we're not responsible, we're not media companies. There's always been this tension for the last decade. And a lot of these companies, as you talk about those 26 words that that, uh, saved the internet, based off of two, Section 230, right, which makes it so these companies, to a degree, don't have to be liable for certain content. But but it certainly seems like we are seeing a shift and that words have more meaning and have consequences that are far-reaching. And the stakes seem incredibly high in that, I, you know, I, I think the debate is is certainly open of, of you know, and you look at, I, I keep looking at Jack Dorsey and what he's kind of walked into as well. And now all the calls to do all these other things and where are they going to draw the line? So it's certainly, um, it certainly feels complicated. Yeah, it is. And I, and I tried to address that um, in that, you know, and let them know, let Facebook know, you know, I, I know this is not an easy problem. I know it's going to be hard, but, but to try to give them the courage to do it and do something about it, and and I think the the writing in the in the letter from my former colleagues and my friends is is brilliant, and I, I it, those insights are 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 so spot on, and uh, and I hope I hope Facebook listens. I thought what you said about Facebook strengths are its weaknesses as well, which is you know it's, it's always been the story of technology, right? Which is it can do such incredible things and it can also do such terrible things too. And and we always just walk this fine line and, and it can get incredibly murky, you know? And I think what we've seen over the last couple of years or some of, maybe even the last, not even a couple of years, even before then, really, you know, these ethical issues that, that I, I think a lot of these people are working through and sometimes better than others. Yeah, I I agree, and uh, you know, for for Facebook, you know, the their their biggest strength is the the connections that they've created and and fostered and facilitated between literally billions of people, and uh, there's a lot of benefit to that. But you know, we're also realizing that that it creates some vulnerabilities, and there are evil forces in the world that are exploiting them. Um, and I just think there's more that Facebook can and should do about it, and uh, and I hope they will. Um. From like on a personal note, you've you have been at Facebook, uh, you've been at Pinterest, you've been a part of these companies that uh, that really have kind of uh, shaped people and behaviors and whatnot. Um, what is what is your takeaway on people? Wow, that's a really broad question. What's my takeaway on people? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, you, I, you've kind of been <laughs> in the fray. You've yeah. been in it. You've watched. You've watched things built. You've built things. You've you know, you were in the line of fire at Facebook. Pinterest is a more delicate company, I would say, knowing knowing that company. It's a more delicate culture too. But but what's, you know, you've just had such extraordinary, I would say, experience kind of being being in these places and being on the front lines. Well, yeah, I mean, I what I've observed in those companies and what I felt is that, you know, they, most of the time, the overwhelming amount of time, the people want to do the right thing and they want to change the world for better. Um, and that is, that is a, at least a large part of the, what's motivating. And I, I believe it's what, what's motivating Facebook. I believe it's what's motivating Mark. Um, I, I believe, unfortunately, in, in some cases, they are blind to the consequences of the decisions they're making. Um, I believe they are not giving enough weight to the bad outcomes, you know, as I state. But, 
but I do believe these people are good and they're trying to do good and they want the best for the world. And I think that's why, you know, to your point that they're usually silent, but they're not being silent right now because they are seeing that that intention is not being realized. And in fact, quite the opposite, they, they may be actually damaging the world and, and they don't want to, and they want to do something about it. And so my whole goal was, was to try to give them some ammunition and, and maybe put some form around their thoughts and ideas to, to move the discussion forward towards some action. Um, and I hope it gets there. And you think action would be labeling more of this content? Well, I think it would be not saying we're taking a hands-off approach to content. I think it would be taking some responsibility for the content. And, you know, again, there are lies in the world and there are truths. And having a hand in making sure the truth is more seen than the lies, I, I don't think is a bad thing. And I don't think it's censorship. There is civil discourse and there's inciting violence. I don't think taking an active hand and saying this civil discourse is of more value than this inciting violence uh, is a bad thing. And that's, that's just a, a bridge that they haven't been willing to cross. And I'm, I'm urging them to cross it. And I, I don't know whether that means one will be labeled. I don't know whether that means the distribution will be throttled on one and, and surged on another. I don't actually know the solution, but I, they need to cross that bridge first uh, and, and commit to, to having those outcomes be an actual goal. You know, free speech is not an outcome. Free speech is, is a means to an end, but the end right now is, is damaging the world. So how do we get to an end that actually makes the world better? And that's the thing that I'm hoping they'll get to. Right. What do you say to the folks? You know, um, anytime some people like come and speak out at Facebook or whatnot, I would say, yeah, I saw an executive, I was like, I think it was Dan Rose or something, say like, you know, just early people who have no connection or something like that. He was saying, you know, don't even know the nuances or complexities of this argument. You haven't been there in a while. Um, so to defend yourself, Barry, what do you say to the executives or the, the people who say, well, you haven't been there in a while, you don't know, what do you get to say something? Well, so I know Dan Rose and I, I think he was having an emotional reaction to feeling that his life's work is attacked and people he cares about and is loyal to are attacked. And I, I don't think that tweet was actually reflective of him. I, I think he, he more meant, you know, kind of what you're saying is that, you know, you guys are, have not been at the company for a long time. You don't know the, the content of the discussions. They have been deep and endless um, and you should trust the people that work there. And to that, I would say, I do trust the people to work there, but I think you are not realizing the consequences of those decisions. I am sure they were thoughtful. I'm sure they were endless. I'm sure they were as deep as they could possibly be, but I believe they were wrong. And I believe the evidence supports my position and not yours. And you have a responsibility to do something. And even more than that, I think you have the ability to do something. And I think it could be a tremendous success and opportunity for the company and for the world, even more importantly. Um, if they would seize it. And I, I urge you to do so. And, you know, and, and also when you talk about the decisions people at the company are making, I, I feel like I couldn't end this interview without saying, you know, I mean, it, I think it was reported that there was one person of color or one woman of color in the room when the, one of the decisions was made on the Trump post, you know. So when we talk about, and this is a larger conversation, when we talk about the decisions that these that folks are making, who are the people making the decisions and are they diverse and a diverse group of perspectives? I think that's something we have to hold on to that. I, I think we're seeing it come to a head now in this moment. You know, I mean, 
there's just not enough different voices and perspectives. And this isn't just Facebook. I mean, this is all of Silicon Valley has a massive problem. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, and as you say it, I wish, I wish I'd brought it up in, in my writing, but you know, and it's, it's diversity across every dimension, race, religion, socioeconomic status, education, you know, the, the people who work at Facebook and are making the decisions are highly educated, highly sophisticated. They're not seeing this stuff in their feeds because they're not posting it and the people that they associate with uh, know the difference, but lots of other people are seeing it in their feeds and they don't know that it's a lie. They don't know that it's inciting of violence in some cases, you know, it's, and I think if more of the leadership team had the perspective of the people who were seeing all of the content on Facebook based on their race, their religion, their economic status, you know, where they come from, I think they would have a different opinion of the impact because they're not seeing it themselves because they're not exposed to it. And then I guess last question, have you had other folks from inside the company reach out to you after kind of speaking out and and writing? Do other people share your feelings? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, the the response has been fairly overwhelming. You know, I didn't know if anyone would listen or care. Uh, It seems like people are and do, which which is, it's just gratifying. And, And I would say the most common response that I got from current employees, uh, former employees, and actually even people who never worked at Facebook, but feel a connection to it in, in some way, because probably because they love the product and been, have been on it for years, is some form of, thank you for writing this. You encapsulated some feelings and thoughts that I've had for a while. And, uh, and so I... I am I am one person who 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 you know had my own ideas and but it, it seems like they are shared by a lot of people and and I hope that gives them some weight to Facebook and that they do something because I I want them to I I know they can I think they should um, and 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 if they did I think it could be tremendously valuable to the world. And last question, I promise sure. you. Um... You know, you were leading the charge in, in comms during some of these very intense situations. Privacy was a huge one back when you were there. Right. Um, so you kind of went into the, the line of fire. Um, what advice would you give Mark right now? Oh, man. Uh, what advice would I give Mark right now? I would, well, I, I tried to give some of it, you know, without naming him in, in my writing. And, and I think it is to pay attention to the outcomes, not just your intent. And to have courage against the, the critics who, who have power to limit and damage your business and your company. And to have faith in your ability to do something really remarkable for the world in a new way, in, in, an, in a way that you haven't before. And not just enabling free expression, but an outcome of, of actually informing people and improving their knowledge of the world and their understanding of the world and enabling them to make the right decisions about it. And I think that's something that he has the ability to do and I I urge him to do it. First Contact is a production of Dot 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 Media, executive produced by Lori Siegel and Derek Dodge. This episode was produced and edited by Sabine Jansen and Jack Regan. The original theme music is by Xander Singh. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio. 
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilbur Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.